I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. This is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, we're so excited to have House Majority Whip James E. Clyburn on our show to talk about Joe Biden's win, the Democratic strategy going forward, and Trump's ridiculous, hapless coup attempt, which as uh, unmoored as it is, could not be more dangerous to the country. And I want to start there. So, Steve, I've been dying to ask you this since Rudy Giuliani's epic press conference yesterday. As you watch that, in a way only you can, describe what you were thinking. I don't know why this was my first thought, but it was that next year's going to be 20 years since 9-11. 20 years. That man should not be anywhere near any public ceremony on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What a disgrace. To watch somebody who is broadly admired by people of both parties across the country as an American hero, to watch the degeneracy of his character, the insanity of this news conference, from the dripping dye down his face, the conspiracy theories, and open sewer line poisoning faith and belief in our democracy. And we've talked about this every week, week on, week off, knowing this was coming. But there you go. It took a couple of weeks. It took a couple of weeks. 80% of the Republican Party believes the election was fraudulent and will always believe it. This will become now a threshold question for any 2024 candidate. Ruinous, ruinous towards a democracy. It's the worst thing that Trump has done is this act. And I don't say that lightly, but this is what the country's about at its core. This is what the shots were fired at Lexington and Concord about. And to see it brought low in the service of a loser like Donald Trump, God, it's just, it's despicable, it's tragic, it's appalling. And the cowardice of these Republicans, Lamar Alexander, Lamar Alexander had to be sworn in early because of the corruption of the outgoing governor who was selling parts. It is a man whose political career was born on the back of corruption, a progressive, dynamic, competent Republican governor, really in a lot of ways the architect of modern Tennessee, the prosperity of that state. A lot of it is attributable to the wisdom of Lamar Alexander, someone who is a, look at this man's public career, cabinet secretary, university president, two-term governor, United States senator, presidential candidate, if Joe Biden won. <laughs> what a tragic moment. Well, and Steve, Lamar Alexander's statement's considered courageous. You know, <laughs> I agree with you. This is the worst thing Trump's done. It won't be successful in the near term, but we are going to live with this because he won't be the only one that tries to do this. And this entire country is built on a foundation in the country's belief in free and fair elections, in the concept and principle of self-governance, and that people who lose elections respect those results in offices from state representative to president. That's always been the case. And it bears repeating, this is not a close election, yet you have 80% of the Republican Party and just about every member of Congress and every Republican governor, with some notable exceptions, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Governor DeWine of Ohio, basically either openly aiding and abetting Trump 
or kind of, uh, you know, acting in a cowardly way in the feudal position, refusing to challenge him. And if this isn't sacred, nothing is sacred. I mean, after that press conference, I know I'm naive. I thought there would be more Republicans saying, okay, this is enough. I mean, the most credible argument that Sidney Powell, what a fucking freak show she is, by the way, <laughs> and Rudy Gianni put forward is somehow Hugo Chavez's ghost, you know, manipulated this election. He did. I mean, it, it's insanity. Okay. It's insanity. But everyone's quiet. But I think he did it. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're no. in a sad state of affairs when Tucker Carlson, you know, looks like someone who's handed this response, a voice of reason. But you think about the 2024 Republican presidential debates moderated by Laura Ingram. And one of the like lightning rounds will be, was the election stolen? And every single person on that stage is going to have to answer yes. Well, let's do a quick lightning round. I'm going to ask you some quick questions, right? And I don't think this is covered as much as it should be. But if Kevin McCarthy, and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell could, in fact, overturn through some coercive method, threatening the use of the military, whatever the means may be, if they could overturn the lawful result of the election, do you believe they would do it? I do. I do, too. Which means the country as we know it is over. Do you believe the majority of these people would lock up you and I for dissenting speech? Yes. Me, too. Do you believe they would send us to some type of prison camp to be reformed? I do. We'd have to watch Newsmax 24 hours a day. Yes. Do you think that some of these people would gladly execute political opponents? Some would, not all. That's the only thing I'd hesitate on so far. Yeah. I know Trump would. For sure. Do you have any question that he would? No, I don't. Okay. And we're saying that about a sitting United States president. Don't say it lightly. I don't say it lightly at all. You know, if they could. They would. My guess is Trump would utilize the Putin method on poisoning, right? So these would not be public executions on the West Front of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. But right. the, the, listen, the people that he admires most around the world from a leadership standpoint all believe that elections are an irritant, that opponents should be prisoned if not killed, that dissent should be silenced. But for these Republican politicians, I mean, imagine being on your deathbed and probably the most significant act you're going to be remembered for is refusing to accept the results of an election because you were afraid of Donald fucking Trump. Really? You only have one life to live. Is this the way you want to uh, basically put a capstone in your life and your career? That's what I don't understand. How do you look in the mirror and say this is okay? Any one of these people could do this. Get up out of bed today. Look in the mirror. What do they see staring back? I'm a United States senator. And today... I'm going to go to the floor of the United States Senate, and I'm going to raise my voice in defense of the country and denounce this insanity at long last. Zero, zippo, no takers, terrified of the tweet, terrified of the sky. I don't think there's ever been a time in our country's history where you have this many leaders acting this cowardly, unprincipled. Pretending that blue is red, pretending that the sky is the ground, pretending that two is four. Ted Cruz, for all the things you can say about Ted Cruz, is not a dumb person, obviously. He's actually a quite intelligent person. Marco Rubio, maybe not quite in the same quartile, but, you know, a smart person. These people are purposely taking a dive on the country. And again, I think this is sedition. It is treasonous. And I'm not sure we recover from this. I mean, this is a serious wound to the country. 
I'm not so sure it's not a fatal wound. And so the notion that somehow on January 20th, we can all exhale and basically breathe a sigh of relief and things will return to some sense of normalcy, I think is complete and utter fantasy. Well, David, we could keep talking about this insanity, but we have a great guest waiting to join us today. That is Congressman Jim Clyburn, who was born the eldest son of an activist minister and a beautician in Sumter, South Carolina, along the seacoast. He was elected president of his NAACP youth chapter when he was just 12 years old. And as a college student at South Carolina State, he was actively involved in the civil rights movement, organizing marches and protests. He came to Congress in 1993 to represent South Carolina's sixth district and was subsequently elected co-president of his freshman class, as well as chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, vice chairman and later chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. This is his 14th term as a congressman and his second stint as majority whip, the first from 2007 to 2011 and the current term from 2019 through today. This year, Congressman Clyburn has another unofficial title, Kingmaker. He is credited with bringing Biden's campaign back from the dead with an unexpected endorsement that came just a few days before the South Carolina primary. After Clyburn threw his support behind Biden, he won South Carolina and received a cascade of endorsements that transformed his candidacy from unlikely to undeniable Democratic nominee. After that endorsement, the vice president never looked back. And today, he is the president-elect of the United States and soon will be the 46th president. Congressman Clyburn, thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Congressman, Biden's going to be our next president. He will get sworn in. But you have most of the House Republican caucus, most of the Senate Republicans, with just a couple notable exceptions, saying things like maybe Trump did win. You know, even Lamar Alexander Day is getting credit for saying the transition ought to happen. But the first line of his statement is, if Joe Biden wins. I mean, the cowardice. <laughs> There's not a word in the English language to describe how ridiculous they are. OK, but the one thing they certainly are is racist. I mean, they're openly saying if you don't count Wayne County in Michigan, Trump would win. You know, all the fraud is in the African-American community. And so how do we move forward here? You have divided government. Now, let's hope we win both Georgia races. Even if we do, it's only 50. I'm not suggesting Mitch McConnell is suddenly going to change and you guys are going to have, um, you know, a historic legislative session. But how do you move forward here so somehow we can put the American people first again and get some stuff done for them? Well, you know, I've had some discussions with uh, the president-elect about what I think he ought to do going forward. And this may surprise you and may not, but I'm here because of an executive order. The Emancipation Proclamations, both of them were executive orders. Truman used an executive order to integrate the armed services. With those men coming back from World War II, having just helped us win a war, defeating Germany, no less, but the German prisoners were treated much better than the black soldiers who came back. And so that was corrected by Truman with an executive order. So I've said to Joe Biden that I think that we need to take a hard look at where the country is, what needs to be done to get the country back on track. And if we get a bunch of recalcitrants from the Senate, use the executive order. And whatever authority you got, the courts may overturn it. But I think that's what he's got to do. 
Because if you don't, they're going to cripple him. He got to be willing to use that executive order. When I got here, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals was Lily White. Now, the Fourth Circuit covers South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia, the largest black population of all the circuits. But it was Lily White. And I kept pressing, and Jesse Helms were fighting me. And I, I finally went to uh, Bill Clinton. I said, we need to do a recess appointment. He didn't want to do it because that was so outside of the ordinary. That wasn't regular order. He finally used a recess to appoint Roger Gregory. When Roger Gregory got on that court, he's now the senior judge down there in the full circuit. Both senators support keeping him there, the Democrat and the Republican. So I, I've said that to Joe. I think that if you use your executive order to do what is right, as John Lewis would say, and be forthright about it and say why you're doing it, I think that you'll be successful. But if you sit back and wait on these guys to come around to your way of thinking, I'm sure glad that Truman didn't do that. And I know Colin Powell glad Truman didn't do that. And I'm glad that Abraham Lincoln did what he did. So I just believe that what you got to do is propose the legislation, give them ample time to deal with it, and if they do to him what the Congress continued to do to Truman, and in many instances what they did to Roosevelt, use executive order. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. Stick around so you can hear more from Congressman Jim Clyburn. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with the legendary South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. What I wanted to ask you, Congressman, is if you could just take us back to the moment when you first in your life walked into the U.S. Capitol. Would you share with us that experience? I first came into the U.S. Capitol around 66, 67. It might have been earlier than that, maybe 64 or 5. I was hired by Charleston County to run a neighborhood youth court program, basically because I had developed a reputation of working with young people. I was a public school teacher, and I started working with young people at a neighborhood house run by Catholic Charities. One of the nuns came to the school and told me that she had had some experiences with some of my students. And from what she heard them saying, she thought that I would be a, a pretty good influence with them if I were to spend some weekends with them. And I started doing that. Then my reputation got up such that uh, they asked me to run this program when I was only 25 years old. And I used to put my age up in the newspapers all the time. Uh, so when you go back to Charleston, you think I'm even older than I am. I'm old enough, but not as old as the math would give you. And so I just decided to give these young people an experience they had never had. And so I got with William Jennings Bryan Dorn, who had become a favorite of mine because of his relationship with Bennett Mays, who was from his hometown, and arranged to bring some young people from the Sea Islands of South Carolina up to Washington, and some of them on their first train ride. And I brought them to the Capitol. Uh, they met with 
Brian Dorn on the House side and Fritz Hollins on the Senate side. That was my first visit here. And I decided that day that I better work on trying to get back here on a more permanent basis. And when you walked into the Capitol Dome onto the floor of the House of Representatives as a member of Congress, take us through that, that experience, what you thought when you looked up under the dome as you walked through Statuary Hall, as you take your place in the story of America a long time ago. Just talk about that experience. Well, the most impactful thing was the night before. The night before, I came up here and I saw the Capitol Dome at night. And there was something about that light, that dome, the way it was lit. I can't explain how it made me feel. I didn't walk in the building until the next morning. And of course, even when I went on the floor for the first time, I couldn't get that dome out of my head. And I still can't. There's just something majestic about seeing the Capitol Dome at night. I still get goosebumps when I look at that dome at night. On the floor of the house, was just anticlimactic for me because it, the dome is just a symbol of stuff. And I had done a little bit of history, uh, studying history over the time, and I knew uh, it was that Lady Freedom, whatever we call that statue up there, I knew how it got up there from some of my studies. That it happened to just be a former slave from Charleston, South Carolina, that taught them what they needed to do to get that statue on top of that dome. If I had just come here not knowing any history about the place, it might have been different, but I, I knew that history. It is the great act of optimism in the country's history that Lincoln insisted that the Capitol Dome be built even during the middle of Civil War so that the government of the United States, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, would have a place to reconsecrate itself, to come back together. And now... When you look at the totality of your long historic career in the Congress, to look across the aisle and to see people that have broken faith with American democracy, with the idea that the people are sovereign, we decide, and we decided to elect Joe Biden, the president of the United States, by a decisive margin. And now for the first time in the history of the country, we have an effort to assert that I'm not leaving power that I'll do anything to stay in power, legal, illegal, no matter how crazy the conspiracy theory, and just the act of poisoning faith and belief in the system. And all of the fights and the good fights that you've had, all the passionate disagreements on principle, on the floor, how do you ever look at these colleagues again, knowing that it's not any type of policy disagreement, no matter how profound, it's now they are in open conflict with the very idea of the country, which is that we're a democratic republic and that all of the sacrifice from Gettysburg to Normandy to the Edmund Pettus Bridge is now at stake as they try to stand for something that has never been tolerated in this country. Well, it's hard. It's really hard. Our first day back here after the election, a member from the other side who uh, I've been 
has a pleasant relationship with, came over to congratulate me. And I looked at him and I found myself wondering what he was thinking about what's going on. But it's hard. It's hard for me to sit down with Nancy Pelosi on the phone with her as I was last night trying to figure out how we can do something about some assistance for people who are going to have a real bad Christmas and Thanksgiving. And to see the callousness that seemed to be on the other side of the aisle. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't make public what I really think sometimes when I look at it. Going to take a break to pay some bills. Be right back. Welcome back to Battleground with Congressman Clyburn. Congressman, I've I've seen some of the interviews you've done post-election, and I appreciate that you've been candid. I think after every election, whether it's the best election you could imagine, the worst election, there's lessons, right? Where you could have done better, where you've got opportunities. And, you know, Joe Biden won a decisive victory, a victory that wouldn't have made possible without you. We're all thrilled about that. Decisive popular vote and electoral college. But we, we lost seats in the House. We didn't do as well in the Senate, State House. We saw Joe Cunningham, who ran such a great race in 18 and your state won, lost in, in 20. And you've mentioned, and I agree with this, it's hard to look at some of the numbers in South Florida, in rural areas throughout the country, or along the border in Texas. And some of these attacks on socialism, as ridiculous and bullshit as they were, you know, defunding the police, they hurt us. And you can't correct a problem unless you're honest about it. And so how do we in the future here get full benefit of the younger base in the Democratic Party? It's very multicultural, very diverse, you know, more progressive than the electorate as a whole, but also do what we need to do with more conservative voters. Joe Biden won the moderate vote going away. It's, it's a major reason he's president. We need to make sure we continue to do that because the truth is the natural state of things in the Senate is probably always 54 Republican senators because there's a lot of states we're just not competitive in. So we've got to get competitive again in more places. And in the House, we saw an 18, that was probably our high watermark, but there's a lot of these districts that are exurban. They've got rural communities in them. You know, we have to be more competitive in more places. So what's your view? I know the election just happened. There's a lot we don't know, but you know, you've been through a lot of elections, landslides for us, landslides for them. How do we put this together in a way that allows us to do as well as we can with more centrist voters, a lot of them white, but also get full benefit of that passionate, powerful base? To me, this is always a false debate. People say, well, is it base? Is it swing? Like to win a tough district or a tough state, you need it all. That's the lesson. And you got to find a way to put it all together. Well, I appreciate the question. I may be able to answer that question a little better uh, after the first of the year, because I'm doing my own autopsy on my own congressional district Mm -hmm. for uh, 26 years. I don't think I've ever lost a single county in my district. I may have missed one that I don't remember. This time I lost four, four counties. And I'm taking a hard look at that. Now I know what I think. And I hear a lot of people telling me I'm wrong about that. To me, no one is ever wrong until you look back on what the developments were. Uh, And when I talked to Donna Shalala, as I did two days after the elections, and Debbie, I always had problems with her hyphenated last name, Powell or something Powell. Yeah. They talked about socialism being a problem. They talked about um, defunding police being a problem. John Lewis and I talked about that at length 
before he went home for the final time. And we concluded that we lost control of our movement back in the 60s over a slogan, burn, baby, burn. And we thought that defunding the police could have the same kind of impact on Black Lives Matter. John's last appearance was on Black Lives Matter Plaza. We supported Black Lives Matter and everything that flows from it. But the question is, you don't run the agenda up here unless you're in the majority. And if you sit down and someone tells me that that's so negative in my district, we need to respect that. There are a lot of things that I can say that will be fine in my district. I don't say them because it's not going to be fine in other districts. So I just think that we have to really take a hard look at some of the um, terms we use. But something else we got to do. Because as Donald Shalina said to me, it wasn't just about the money. And Debbie says it wasn't just about defund the police. She told me there are some nuances, things that came up in the campaign that they decided to ignore. They came back to bite them. And so we got to take a look at this and see what it is, how we allow ourselves to be defined. If anybody is pushing a negative out there about you, it's best not to ever ignore it. And that's a problem for us in rural areas, especially in the South. I believe we've got to push a rural agenda. I've been pushing broadband as being a way uh, to get rural America into the 21st century. I just think that we've got to just look at this and do it. And if you don't give them some reason to vote for you, they'll go for whatever is fed to them on the other side. The other side is feeding them Jim Crow. And that's all they've got to eat is Jim Crow. We need to give them something else. If we give them some other things, we give them broadband, we give them these infrastructure projects. You know, we call the internet the information highway. Well, let's treat the information highway the same way we treat the, inter the interstate highway. We've just never done that. And I've got a little issue I'm working on right now uh, that um, is being stopped uh, by some urban folks over some philosophy they got. But it, it, I think it just costs uh, some of us some rural seats because we didn't do it. We just got to stop doing that. It's fascinating. You talked about your district. So those four counties, rural counties, I imagine, when you look at the numbers in like South and North Carolina, I don't want to overstate it, but it does seem like Trump and some of the Republicans did a little bit better with rural black voters. They didn't make any gains in urban areas. And, you know, when you think about rural, I think a lot of us think just about white voters and they're dominant in most counties. But we can't afford, obviously, to lose, you know, five, seven, eight percent of rural black voters. Did you see that phenomenon at all in your district or in the state? Yes. That Sunday night that I sat down uh, with Joe Biden on that ship before the um, South Carolina debate, I said to him, I said, Senator, you've got everything going for you on the Senate floor. We've got to do something about answering some of these questions when they're asked. And so I told him, I said, look, I don't care what they ask you. You've got to cover three points. In your answer, this is what my proposal will do for you. This is what it will do for your family. And this is what it will do for your community. 
And once you do that, stop talking. Great advice. (laughs) (laughs) Really good advice. That's good advice. It took him some time, but he got there. (laughs) I was on um, I was on a television program the other day and um, issue came up, a defund the police, whether it hurt, whether it was good. And the question wasn't about the merit of the argument to the person I was on TV with. It was about the rhetoric. And he defended the rhetoric as opposed to the point. Wouldn't it be better to call it reform the police, which probably 80 percent of the country is in favor of? And when you talk about police, I think an issue that Black Lives Matter has really forwarded that I think a lot of people in this country can come to agreement on is around questions about the militarization of the police. How many local police departments have bought themselves armored personnel carriers? And I'd much rather see those expenditures being spent on programs that interdict the type of behavior that intersects with the criminal justice system, ultimately, you know, which it seems to me that you want to do. But I was having this discussion with a Republican yesterday who said, you know, I don't want to see the Republicans lose the Senate. And I said, well, I do. He said, well, you know, how can you disagree? And I said, well, there's only one party in America that's faithful to democracy now. Right. And so that's my issue. But I want to live in a republic. I want to live in a democracy. And so for me, that means I'm going to see policies that are further to the left on economic issues and others that I would like to see. That being said, in a broad coalition, you just hope that there can be some pragmatism as we look ahead, some common sense. You know, when I listen to the congressman talk about broadband, you know, the transformative pieces of social legislation, right, in the 20th century, you know, were clearly the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, clearly Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. But the one that was totally transformative of the country was the Interstate Highway Act. It transformed the country in a profound way for the better. And I think an interstate broadband act would probably have the same effect. What chances do you think, Congressman, like, do you see any hope that there's any era of pragmatism and common sense that could be out there on the horizon by people who just look at so many obviously broken things and say, we just got to, we got to fix some of this stuff, right? The country can't succeed if 40% of the people have $400 of cash savings and don't have any connection to the internet. And we got to fix it. Oh, I agree. Uh, I, I do believe that we cannot have effective health care delivery without broadband. You've got to have telehealth, telemedicine. You're not going to have adequate education for our children without broadband. Online learning is going to be a thing out into the future. It's been a thing for some time now. And so uh, broadband, to me, will connect rural America to the rest of the world. And the way to connect with the world today is via the internet. So I just think that broadband is very critical to us bringing Americans together and doing it in a positive way. Now, it may call for us having to take a hard look at whether or not we're going to have some regulation of what goes out over the internet. Because I think that we are about to destroy the morals of this country if we don't have some policing of what's truth and what's not. Sir, thank you very much for stopping by today. We appreciate it. It's a great honor for both of us.
Congressman, you're an American hero. So it was great to spend time with you and, and, you know, the mark that you've left on this country and our nation's capital will echo through the decades and couldn't be more excited that you're there at our moment of need in the country since FDR was president. Well, thank you so much. Both of you guys, you are two of my favorite people. You know, my parents were Republicans, Steve. Mm-hmm. So I've got some of that in me. Uh, so, David, uh, I'm a proud Democrat. So you guys are two of my favorites. I really love watching you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I was just thinking, what a great guest, but do you imagine that guy having to sit across the table from some fucking moron like Matt Gaetz or Jim Jordan, <laughs> right, like in a meeting? Like, what must that be like? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's scary to think. We want to thank Congressman Clyburn for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Vassell is our executive producer. 